Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey Liptyper Knockreiner. <laughs> On today's episode, uh, we will try and guess what Corey is typing by reading his lips. But on the, the news side of things, we've got four separate stories. One, an update to Volt Typhoon that we discussed last week. Then we'll go into what seemed like a pretty scary attack by a Terminator that turns out to be a little bit less scary. Go into a, is it a backdoor or not a backdoor from a very popular motherboard manufacturer. And then end with what I thought was impossible, and that is Mac OS malware or malicious activity. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and uh, slip our way in. <laughs> Volt Typhoon sounds like some new EV car from South Korea. Volt Typhoon. So let's start this week with a update to one of last week's stories. Uh, so on the last episode, we discussed Volt Typhoon, which pop quiz time. Uh, what does typhoon mean in that uh, that nomenclature, Corey? China. <laughs> there you go. You remember. Uh, China. So, how does how does he say it? I forget. With Microsoft's new naming convention, typhoon means any uh, threat actor originating in China. Or I think it, maybe it's even specifically state sponsored. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's, de- it's definitely it, it's state sponsored in China. So anyways, last week we discussed Volt Typhoon, which was the Chinese government-backed threat actor that relies 100% on living off the land techniques. And relatively soon, I guess, lol, lotl, 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 lotl. Um, (laughs) A few days after we posted that episode, uh, CISA, along with quite a few other international organizations, released an advisory with some more details on Volt Typhoon's activity. I actually just saw about 30 minutes ago as of this recording, it looks like the FBI put out maybe a copy or the same advisory as well, too. So essentially uh, U.S. and international governments are definitely picking up on this activity and publishing their own info. Um, So CISA's advisory didn't have like a whole lot new. It reiterated a lot of the activity that Microsoft highlighted just with some additional IOCs sprinkled throughout it. But there was actually one interesting new uh, bit of activity that wasn't in Microsoft's original report. So if you remember, Microsoft pointed to uh, Volt Typhoon using NTDS util to create installation media off of Windows Active Directory domain controllers, because that installation media would then have hashed passwords of credentials for use during deployment, which if you've got access to that uh, ISO file or whatever, you could then crack those offline. So CISA actually highlighted additional activity around the ntds.dit file. So ntds.dit, it's the main Active Directory database file. Uh, It's stored in the system root ntds slash ntds.dit location on the Active Directory domain controllers. It's got things like information on users, groups, group memberships, uh, password hashes for all users on the domain. (laughs) Kind of an important one. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Um, now, data in this file, it's encrypted, but that key is available in the system registry hive, which you need system level permissions to view it. Um, and it's also locked while in use by Active Directory, which is theoretically the entire time that that domain controller is online. Um, but what Volt Typhoon was doing is they're using VSS admin to create a shadow copy 
of the entirety of the C drive, which then lets them extract that .dit file and the system registry hive from that shadow copy because they're not locked in there. They're only locked in the actual running version of those files. Um, so the additional IOA, IOCs that CISA put in the report were all around this activity. Some of the commands they were using, they actually had a like four or five different ways they were doing these shadow copies and data exfiltration. Uh, and it was one little bit of behavior that wasn't uh, at least actively uh, discussed in Microsoft's post that we chatted about last week. Um, so CISA does specifically call out, uh, quote, if an actor can exfiltrate the ntds.dit and system registry hive, the entire domain should be considered compromised, which is fair. It's got every single user hash on there. And theoretically, at some point, they'd be able to crack them. I don't actually know. They're not stored as NTLM hashes in there, right? Because that would be bad news bears. They're hopefully... Uh, man, I'm actually curious. Corey, do you have it off the top of your head exactly how they're stored? Because it could be real sure. bad. But it could be but, NTLM hashes. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past Microsoft. Exactly. Um, either way, though, like just being able to crack them offline uh, is enough to say, theoretically, if that gets stolen, you should consider all those accounts compromised and go through uh, redoing all the passwords. Um, so there are a few other detailed IOCs within this report. If you want to do your own threat hunting in your organization, figure out if you were potentially a victim of this attack, uh, you can check them out. They also had some uh, additional details around like credential theft that Vault Proxy were using. So basically, they'd go and check the registry for SSH keys and open SSHs or PuTTYs registry entries look for VNC keys in the VNC registry. They went and yanked Firefox profiles out of the app data directory. And they even used Mimikatz in some cases too, which I guess kind of breaks the 100% uh, living off the land rule if they're using uh, Mimikatz, because that's cheating. Um, when it comes to recommendations, so they recommend monitoring your event logs for ntdsutil.exe and similar process creation. Basically, this should happen rarely enough during normal systems administration that anytime that process executes, it's something you at least want to take a look at. I mean, maybe, yes, your systems administrators are building a a, a new installation media from a domain controller, but that, that doesn't happen every single day. Definitely worth looking into. Uh, they also the way, recommended... Back, oh, sorry. Yep. Just, just to go, go back in time while you've been updating everyone on the other things. I did find an article that mentions uh, extracting NTLM hashes from the ntds.dit file. So it does sound like they are NTLM. Fantastic. So relatively easy to crack in that case. Um, yeah. Other recommendations, so audit admin activity. So by default, things like uh, process creation and the actual command line executed aren't included in Windows security logs. You can set up an audit policy, though to include audit process creation and the include command line process creation events within there. They recommend doing that. Uh, if you're using like any EDR vendor, like ours as an example, our EDR or EPDR product, that type of activity is already logged and monitored automatically by the client. But if you want to do it through Windows logs, it's a few extra hoops you got to jump through. They also recommend enabling logging for WMI and PowerShell events too, which again, if you're using our EPDR or EDR, that telemetry is already in there by default as well. And then finally, they recommend limiting port proxy usage within environments because that was one of the main mechanisms for these threat actors to main maintain persistence. 
So long story short, like we already chatted about Volt Proxy last week. Not a whole lot of brand new massive detections, but clearly they are getting the attention of international cybersecurity communities at this point. And if you haven't already implemented monitoring and hardening with your environment, uh, it's possible you might be a little too late, depending on uh, how big of a target you have on your back. Um, so moving on, uh, there was another news story that popped up about halfway through last week that when it first like surfaced, uh, and my first interpretation was, okay, that's cool, but what are we supposed to do with this? Basically, earlier last week, a guy going by the name of Spyboy uh, began promoting a tool that they called Terminator on a Russian-speaking hacking forum, which oh, could allegedly a, terminate... Hey, AI Skynet related? They're coming to kill us? I'm kidding. I know what it really is. But... Uh, no, in this case... It was a tool that they had developed and were offering for sale that could allegedly terminate any antivirus, XDR, or EDR platform under the sun. Uh, they're uh, advertising access to it for $300 for bypassing one vendor or $3,000 for bypassing any vendor. And they showed a video of their tool uh, disabling CrowdStrike EDR on a machine. Uh, in that list, to be transparent, Panda Security was listed as well, too, which is why it caught our attention. But at the time of this initial like discovery on that forum, there wasn't really a whole lot to go off of. All we knew was they had an executable called Terminator. It had a, an icon of HXD on it, and that was basically it. Um, but so thankfully, by them targeting CrowdStrike um, with their demo, theoretically, we can assume that CrowdStrike presumably has access to all of the telemetry from their endpoint agents. And it seems like they were able to identify the activity on this demo machine that this threat actor was doing and figure out exactly what was going on. And then they published an article describing it. Um, so it turns out the software, first off, it requires admin access. It requires uh, UAC acceptance as well, too, that little pop-up for user account control. Um, so that probably you, require some sort of trick or social engineering then? In theory, yeah, the or UAC you know, maybe it could be weaponized with a UAC bypass at some point, but at least this version of it pretty rudimentary and you did have to get them to click through that. Um, so once uh, or in theory, the attacker has admin credentials and they're able to do this on their own. Uh, so after accepting UAC, uh, it writes a legitimate signed driver uh, called Zenma anti-malware to the system drivers directory, but it gives it a different random name between four and 10 characters, but it's always this exact same driver from a legitimate anti-malware vendor. A software then loads up that driver and then uses it to terminate at least the user mode process of any AV or EDR software. Now, uh, this was all posted on, funny enough, a Reddit post uh, by an engineer at CrowdStrike. And one of the commenters pointed out that it was most likely CVE 2021-31728 that it was exploiting in this case, which is a vulnerability in that specific driver um, that allows a unprivileged user to use the driver to gain ring zero, so kernel level code execution. That's as high as you can potentially get on a machine, which is interesting that in the demo or in their telemetry, they were only seeing it kill user mode, like ring, what is it, four? Uh, activity and not presumably uh, lower level drivers for some of these EDR tools. Um, to give you like an example, like WatchGuard EPDR operates at a few different levels. Obviously, we've got ring zero kernel level monitoring 
in order to identify things like rootkits and more advanced persistent threats. Um, but there's also user mode components of the engine. For example, the piece of the engine that reports up to WatchGuard Cloud to report telemetry is all user mode. We don't want that to be privileged because it's a bigger attack surface, but it communicates with the more privileged process. If you were to kill that user mode one, like the actual protection would continue chugging along. You just wouldn't get like telemetry and reporting. So it's, it feels like, I don't know, my hot take on this is... Yeah, you'd really want to go kernel if you really want to get the, the smart EDR vendors. And it sounds my, like they my, could have if they had that mode. Yeah. Seems like they absolutely could have. There isn't any indication of, uh, in the demo they showed, whether they were using CrowdStrike's anti-tamper protections or not. For EPDR, we've got anti-tamper protections, basically some hardening and a password requirement to disable or remove the uh, the protection agent. I don't actually know off the top of my head like how that interacts with other kernel-level dri uh, drivers interacting with it. In theory, they'd potentially, if you have that level of access, be able to circumvent some of those controls. Um, but at the end of the day, like my first, like when we saw this, it's this could either be nothing or holy crap, they found like a vulnerability in all of these products. But at the end of the day, it turns out to be just a pretty basic bring your own driver attack, which we're seeing more and more these days. I think a good example of a bring your own, at least application attack is um, what Kaseya? was it? Kaseya? Yeah, with yeah, the, uh, the Microsoft Defender. DLL. So to be more specific, there's uh, tons of DLLs, which are, tip I mean, a DLL is a dynamic link library, but a lot of drivers are just DLLs. Uh, but there's 300-some windows, like uh, they've, many of them have been patched, but there were many DLLs that suffered from this DLL hijacking vulnerability. So if any of those 300 plus Windows application DLLs hadn't been patched or you brought your own, you forcefully downgraded, which is what happened in the Kaseya attack, the living off the land attack loaded an older version of this vendor, just leveraging that DLL hijacking flaw, you could basically co remotely execute code through DLL hijacking. That, that said, I think this one's slightly different, right? Because a lot of those, not all of those DLLs will be ring zero access. So, you know, what so level was... of code execution you get probably depends. Defender probably could be kernel level, but I'm not sure every DLL or driver would be. Graphics drivers would so, probably be kernel level too. Yeah, potentially. The Defender one, it's loading a library, which gives you permissions within whatever Defender has in that case. This one, it's yeah. it's a legitimate driver. They're having to issue like system calls to it directly in order to interact yeah. with it, but they can ultimately carry out whatever function they want within it. And bad, that kernel, like level zero or ring zero access, I mean, that's where real rootkits come in, where you can literally lie to the operating system itself. So, you know, any ring zero level driver that has a flaw like that is a pretty damn big deal. It uh, doesn't only have to be used for this EDR bypass. It could be used for just about anything. And yet, though, I mean, it's like requiring malware before you can... It, it, uh, this thing is saying, basically, if you have local kernel access, you can bypass EDR. I mean, that's true, but how are you going to get this kernel? I mean, how are you going to get this vulnerable driver on a system? That, it's definitely know? one component of a, of a larger attack. This on its own 
it, it helps you potentially evade detection yeah. once you're already on a host. It just feels kind of silly. It is like, yeah, if I had kernel level access, I could disable everything. <laughs> so, you know, isn't the issue, the, the, it's really the vulnerability in the driver that's the big deal. This one way of him leveraging it as though it's a vulnerability against every EDR software. It, shoot, <laughs> kernel level access is a vulnerability. Hopefully our producers will beat that <laughs> or is a, a vulnerability against you, period. So Yeah, it's, and it's at the end of the day, like, silly, in my opinion, because of the level of access that drivers have, that is why you are prompted for you have to have admin access and you have to go through UAC in order to install one of these. So that is why we saw these uh, those pop ups and requirements for this level of access. So Either way, uh, I think hot take on this, it's not as serious as it was made out to be when reports of this first started popping around Twitter. I love that Corey is not able to type without moving his mouth for whatever he is trying to type as well, too. That's one of my favorite features as well. If someone's a good lip reader, you can potentially figure out exactly uh, what he's typing. <laughs> I'm sorry, but, my uh, AI programmer trained me on, on a robot that moved his lips while he typed, so... Blame, blame the exactly. AI. But anyways, I think the takeaway from this story is, yes, if you have kernel level access to a system, you can interfere with other things on that system. And so at the end of the day, it's not like a critical vulnerability in a bunch of other products. Seems like it's just abusing yet another bring your own driver attack. And so takeaway for that is uh, block listing that particular driver at this point, I think, and then moving on with our lives. Uh, so. Moving on to the next story, uh, this one actually had a title change of the article I noticed over the course of 12 hours. Did you see that, Corey? When it was first published, it was all about a, a backdoor, and then now it's a backdoor-like activity from the at least news article. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it could be both. The, the issue is this was a flaw released by Gigabyte. I guess you haven't said it yet, but it's a flaw. Uh, but we don't know the motive of how the flaw got there. So let's talk about the flaw first. But yeah, I, so, you could say it's one of two. It could be both things. We just don't know yet. I Yeah, I, I'll get into my take on that once we intro this. So researchers at uh, Eclipsium published an article last week that was titled Supply Chain Risk from Gigabyte App Center. In their post, they detail a backdoor-like vulnerability in gigabyte motherboards, around 7 million of which have been purchased and are out there in the wild, uh, that's seemingly designed to support software updates in the background. Um, so the gigabyte motherboards uh, UEFI firmware, uh, which is that code that's executed as the system boots prior to Windows being loaded up, contains a native Windows binary, a .bin file, that's written to disk during system boot uh, so this is a, they noted this is a technique that's commonly used by UEFI implants and backdoors like maliciously, which is what tripped off the alarm bells for them to investigate. Uh, then during but the driver be an update mechanism too <laughs> is the is the excuse. <laughs> so during the driver execution environment or DXE phase of a UEFI boot process, the firmware module loads the .bin file into memory. Uh, installing it into a table that's ultimately loaded and executed by the Windows uh, session management subsystem on Windows startup. So basically, it's a native binary, gets put in a spot where when Windows boots, it executes it, 
Um, it then extracts another executable for with, from within inside it called gigabyte update service.exe, uh, saves it to the file system, and then sets it a registry entry to run it as a service, which this is, it again noted, behavior that was common to other implants. Lojax was another one uh, that had similar behavior. And then finally, this update service can then go download and execute other payloads from three different locations, one over plain old HTTP, two of them over HTTPS. They pointed out that HTTP uh, downloads like that are extremely vulnerable to machine in the middle attacks that could inject their own payload. They also pointed out that, yes, two of them used HTTPS, but they weren't actually validating certificates. And the payload itself wasn't being validated for its digital certificate or digital signature, which meant attackers could still inject whatever they want in there. So like as you've been hinting at, Corey, this is so it signs more to being, you know, legitimate intended by Gigabyte. But this is like sketchy, really poor practices all in all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> UEFI is all about security. So it's really weird for them to have a process like that there. But it, it seems to be intentionally put there, whether or not whatever the purpose is. Uh, and people are going back and forth on it, right? I mean, uh, just to be sure, Gigabyte, Gigabit, however you, I guess it's Byte, uh, they're technically a Taiwanese company. They're registered in Taiwan. But my understanding is 90% of their supply chain is China. Uh, recently, I think one of the Taiwanese employees uh, to kind of make a point that they didn't really love the fact that China might be threatening the independence of Taiwan, uh, changed the marketing message on the website, but then the 90% Chinese supply chain reacted pretty strongly and made a point that Gigabyte doesn't exist without China. So I just mentioned that country because it brings up obvious speculation. You know, if we're getting all our equipment from a supply chain at an adversarial place, it's pretty darn scary to have this backdoor a secret Windows software installer built into the the secure boot portion the of our motherboard. It's a firmware. Itself. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty nuts. And like it's difficult to even like mitigate without a firmware update in this case. Like you can't yes, you can delete the you know gigabyte update service.exe executable, get rid of the service. But the next time you reboot, it'll just plop it right back there yeah. and set it all yeah. up again. This is exactly why UEFI and BIOS-based uh, rootkits are so frightening because they have persistence beyond the operating system. You can even go uninstall Windows, reinstall Windows, boot it up fresh, and it'll plop this thing right Damn. on your storage device all yeah. over again. Um, yeah. There's some mitigations that uh, Eclipsium recommended. So first off, uh, upgrading. It seems like Gigabyte addressed this. You can turn off the App Center download and install feature within Gigabyte motherboard's uh, BIOS UEFI setup. It's a checkbox in there that prevents this mechanism from working. They also recommend setting up a BIOS password so someone else can't go in and tamper with this. Um, and even blocking the URLs involved in the download is another mitigation thing. But at the end of the day, like even if this was legitimate and i want to give them the benefit of the doubt like it's fixed they thought yeah. you know we need to we need to be able to update our firmware and the easiest way to do that let's just have it automatically do it on startup like sure makes sense but this is like the sketchiest worst way to potentially do that yeah where, undocumented feature that you don't tell people about you know no thank you exactly and this is a like 
even if it was intentional, like it's still a massive risk for Gigabyte as an organization suddenly becoming a supply chain attack vector for their seven plus million customers that have these motherboards. Like even if it's an intentional, we don't know what's going on inside their organization. If they suffer a compromise and suddenly these update files are turned into malware, it'll just automatically deliver it every time a, one of these computers reboots onto their user machine devices out there that were potentially affected. So if you are a, a hardware manufacturer, or I guess even a software manufacturer, don't do this. Consider other ways of keeping your devices updated, potentially ones that require human activity and don't start in the UEFI boot process outside of Windows. It's and just what, even if you trouble. decide you want to do this for some crazy reason, document it. You know, the key difference between being a vendor that I'm now suspicious of and may never buy products from because I don't know if I can trust you. And at least if it was a documented thing, you would get people telling you not to do it and you'd probably still have to patch it out. But at least people wouldn't be wondering if you really are a plant trying to hack the rest of the world. Yeah, 100%. So if you are a gigabyte motherboard user or if you're maybe an OEM Dell buyer or something, you don't know what it is, crack open your case and figure it out. And maybe it's time to uh, do a nice firmware upgrade and take some mitigating practices. Uh, Moving on, we have a fourth story I want to chat about. And this actually, so Corey, just 10 minutes ago, you said something about, you know, if you've got root level access, you can own the system. That is the case in Windows and typically in Linux. Uh, But as we all know, Mac is one of the reasons why... Why Mac doesn't get malware is because they've got additional pr- uh, protections around that type of access. Yeah, they have a root that beats root. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so on on Mac OS, there's a security mechanism called System Integrity Protection, or SIP. It was introduced quite a while ago. It was like 10.0.12 or something, uh, Mac OS uh, El Capitan, uh, which basically enforces some mechanisms like file and directory modifications at the kernel level in the operating system. That even prevents root, a process cannot do, right? Even a sudo, even you as a person, uh, certain Apple processes and systems, they won't even let you touch uh, as the root user. You, it has to be this particular SIP integrity protection protocol using signing, you know, having Apple signed things to be able to adjust things in certain so, areas. Yeah. Basically, when uh, any application that runs on macOS has to be signed by a digital certificate, most of them, in fact, I think all of them these days have to go to Apple for some minor validation and then Apple signs it and then your own code signing certificate signs it. As part of that process, you can potentially get what are called entitlements. Think of it just like an item in a manifest saying what your application is allowed to do permissions wise. And there's some entitlements that could allow certain specific applications to bypass systems integrity protection. So typically they're like important ones made or signed by Apple, things like updates and installers by Apple could potentially um, get past some of these protections if they are cryptographically signed by Apple themselves and have specific entitlements. If you ever see Mark's code, it's very entitled. It tries to get access to everything. Such entitled code, Mark. Come on. So entitled. Um, So because it's protected by cryptographic signatures and app signing, it is theoretically extremely difficult, bordering on impossible to forge without compromising one of those code signing keys. 
uh, or the entire signing mechanism by Apple. Um, you can actually, and so backing up, like are able to do some systems protected modifications of important files and directories within the operating system. You can't just like pseudo your way to root and modify some of these files unless the process you're running has the permissions to modify them. So it's a bit of a protection against yeah. root level access, really screwing everything up. I'm glad we have it. It would be quite the migraine if we didn't. <laughs> so, so what happened, Mark? <laughs> so uh, you can disable SIP legitimately, but you have to reboot the system in a recovery partition, which requires having physical access. But uh, so funny enough, Microsoft's threat intelligence team uh, discovered a new vulnerability, which they found and named Migraine in Mac OS uh, that could allow attackers with that have root level access uh, to bypass SIP protections. So you already have to have elevated access, but this gets you the rest of the way to doing anything you want on the file system. Uh, they've received CVE 2023-32369 for it, which Apple has patched as of May 18th. If you haven't yeah, updated your operating system, make sure you go, go do that. Um, so the story of how they found this was actually kind of interesting. They detailed it in their blog post. So Microsoft Defender for 365 or whatever, whatever the heck they call their endpoint, runs on macOS as well, too. And they periodically threat hunt and look for interesting activity. They uh, identified a binary that was called drop underscore sip, which they what initially thought was malware. convention. <laughs> so Thank you I, for if you're threat know hunting what it does. and you understand macOS like file system, you see that you're like, oh man, look at that. That's got to oh, be malware. I want to look. It turns at that. out it was actually a legitimate binary signed and verified by Apple themselves. So when they were looking through um, one of the functions called within it, uh, they found a a system call that re-enables SIP checks, which made them conclude that the drop SIP process must assume it can already bypass SIP. Um, but it's not actually itself directly entitled to any SIP bypass entitlements, which means it likely inherited it from another process. So they found the parent process to drop underscore SIP was something called system migration D. That's, as you might guess, designed to handle system migrations within Mac OS. And it includes a SIP bypass entitlement called com.apple.rootless.install.heritable. And that heritable one lets it get past SIP. And also any process that it spawns, any child process can inherit that and also bypass SIP. So that is how this drop SIP process is able to get past it and then re-enable it when it's done. Um, so they were reviewing that system migration D uh, process, looking at other child processes. They found that it also at one point launches a bash script and it also launches a Perl script, both of which like those are not modifiable even by a root user. So you can't just go and replace that script with something else and gain code execution that way. But uh, for those familiar with bash, you know, there's a environment variable called bash underscore env where basically anytime bash the application runs, it'll execute anything in that environment variable first before getting to whatever it was going to do in the first place. Perl has a similar one. It's called Perl 5 opt, which allows you to put in a command that anytime Perl the application is run, executes that bit of command or code first. Um, so that's the easy way in. Like Just with that, you can execute arbitrary, arbitrary commands with one caveat that you have to get the system migration D process to actually run. 
And so because this is a part of the migration assistant utility, it's not as easy as it may seem in order to actually get that to execute. Like during normal use, the only way to run it is to boot out of or log out and boot into a different partition in order to do the migration. So they ended up going through and reverse engineering the entire process flow for the uh, migration assistant utility, uh, as well as the uh, the setup assistant process within macOS. They went and figured out exactly how they work. They ended up finding a couple of like hidden arguments that you can pass to them if you execute either of these applications on the command line, one of which disables the logout requirement, um, and another one gets rid of a few GUI windows along the way too. Now that said, there's still a few GUI windows you have to jump through before ultimately triggering this code execution. So at the end of the day, their final exploit, uh, what it does when you run this exploit attack, it creates a one gigabyte time machine backup and attaches it using HDI util, prepares a the payload you want to execute uh, that's designed to run bypassing SIP per, uh, permissions, sets the environment variable Perl 5 opt using launch CTL to run that payload when Perl starts, runs the setup assistant application with those debugging parameters to get rid of the logout requirement and get rid of some GUI windows, and then uses AppleScript to automate clicking through the GUI to ultimately do this attack. So it's not very, a very quiet exploit, but it's effective at getting past SIP protections and running whatever code you want with any file system uh, activity. Or you probably mean a login, right? This doesn't necessarily have to do much display on the user it machine. Does, it will pop up the GUI at least for like really? a half second while it gotcha. Apple script clicks through it effectively. Now it clicks through it like boom, boom, done. Yeah. But it, you'll still see a blip kind of. So probably not the most silent, but it is a way to bypass SIP protections without booting into recovery, without logging out, whatever, which at the end of the day is a pretty serious, at least privilege escalation flaw that according to the protections shouldn't exist. Only uh, yeah, yeah, to, to be honest, I, I mean, it is a serious flaw for the OS level, but I think this is something that could maybe get a rootkit for a Mac, right? I mean, I, the argument is you already have to be root to do this. So if you're root, you can probably do anything the user would. So from a pure exfiltration and mess with somebody's computer, you probably have everything you need to take over that person's computer, at least steal all the data. But if you, your goal though. is, yes, if it's more about that persistence, if your goal isn't just to steal data, but it's to sit there and spy without being detected, this gets you to the point where now you can install an Apple, a Mac OS rootkit that hide that the OS itself won't be able to, to detect or log in any way. And it, it gives you deep persistence potential. Good news is that won't happen because Macs don't get malware. Oh, yeah, we um, forgot about that. This never yeah. really happened. <laughs> the, uh, the I don't know if irony is the right word, but the the coincidence is not lost on me that it's Microsoft discovering oh, this gosh. flaw I'm in Mac surprised. OS. The tech giants, though, it doesn't Google do it to Microsoft, too, and Microsoft they do as well to too. Apple, it's... and I wouldn't be surprised if Apple does it to Microsoft one day. And in their defense, like in this one specifically, it's... They discovered it by threat hunting with their own endpoint protection tool. If you've got an endpoint protection tool that runs on an operating system, you need to understand how that operating system works. Uh, so like I, yeah, I get it, but it's a little funny seeing Microsoft point out Apple flaws. And like you said, Google pointing out Microsoft flaws 
maybe Apple will find a Google flaw at some point here soon and we can complete the circle. Be fun. <laughs> that the centipede of vulnerability to the, the, the human researcher centipede. You. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you do have macOS, don't worry, you can't get malware. Uh, but if you just want to be safe anyway, uh, make sure you update to that May 18th Mac update that you potentially still have pending yeah. waiting for you to restart. To be no honest, match. it's pretty cool. The tech giants are helping each other out and making everyone secure. Yeah. And I, I love that they just said, screw it. We'll just reverse it and figure out how to do this on our own. Good on them. That's the kind of research I can totally get behind. Yep. Cool. We'll end with a whimper and not with a bang. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can keep them to yourself or reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore, or is it SecAdept? And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week. Peace out.